Well, good morning again. You know, one of the one of the worst feelings uh, for me personally is that I have been in some way manipulated. That somebody's kind of like tricked me into doing something that they want me to do, into giving them money, uh, and somehow that I have, uh, you know, been been fooled. Nobody likes that feeling. And I actually decided to do a little research on this subject, this subject of manipulation, because frankly, it happens quite a bit in our lives. And I did a little research on how to manipulate someone. Okay, this is interesting. One way you can manipulate somebody is by trying to make them feel insecure or by using like existing insecurities against them. And someone can manipulate you in this way by sort of making fun of you or teasing you about your appearance. Or they may try to take some little mistake that you've made and blow it up into something that's much, much larger. So there's someone preying on your insecurities. And then there's another way is by pity. If someone can play the role of the victim and they can make you pity them so that you will you'll want to help them in any way you can, then you've kind of fallen into their trap. So there's, there's pity. Another possibility is by feeding your narcissism. Uh, somebody that comes to you and they're really, really complimentary, and they're kind of getting you all buttered up so that you'll drop your defenses. And then they come in. Then they make the ask. That's not to say that everybody compliments you as trying to manipulate you, but it is a way. And then there's other ways, playing dumb, pretending like you don't know something. Uh, there's, there's creating false discord. That's the person who's always going to be the really squeaky wheel, knowing that eventually you'll give in to them because you just don't want to enter into conflict with them again. And so oftentimes, manipulation between people can just be a part of everyday life so that it's going on and people don't even realize it. But what happens when you really, really want something and no person can give it to you? You've, you've exhausted the options. You've used all the avenues that you know to use. And there's only one person or one being left that can help you with your problem. Will you then seek to try to find some way to subtly manipulate God. And this is a very dangerous place to go. And the question that we're going to grapple with today, instead of trying to manipulate God or other people, how can I just humbly submit myself to God? How can I do that? And instead of trying to cram my will and, and make my will happen, how can I completely submit to the will of God? The passage that you're, we're going to be in today is, again, from the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges uh, 10 through 12, really, a little part of 10, beginning of 12. But what I want to read to you right now is from Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Judges 11, verses 1 through 11. If you would, please stand with me while we read that passage. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a brave warrior 
His mother was a prostitute, but Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife also gave him sons. When his wife's sons grew up, they made Jephthah leave and said to him, you are not going to inherit any of our father's wealth because you are another woman's son. So Jephthah left his half-brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Lawless men joined Jephthah's gang and traveled with them. It was some time after this when the Ammonites fought with Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the leaders of Gilead asked Jephthah to come back from the land of Tob. They said, come be our commander so we can fight with the Ammonites. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, but you hated me and made me leave my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, it may be true, but now we pledge to you our loyalty. Come with us and fight with the Ammonites. Then you will become the leader of all who live in Gilead. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, All right, if you take me back to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord give them, gives them to me, I'll be your leader. The leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will judge any grievance you have against us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the leaders of Gilead. The people made him their leader and commander. Jephthah repeated the terms of the agreement before the Lord in Mizpah. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing our series in Judges. And we're going to look at this new cat that came on the scene, this guy Jephthah. Week after week, time and time again, we see this cycle being repeated. They've got freedom. They're enjoying freedom. Then they again turn to apostasy. That means they're falling away. They fall away from Yahweh. And they start doing their own thing. And, and Yahweh brings them back into bondage. And then what happens? They get tired of the bondage, the oppression. So they approach God again with humility and repentance. And they cry out to God, deliver us. Please deliver us. And we see this again and again. And again, and again. This morning, we're going to take a look at a new deliverer, a man by the name of Jephthah. And God did not select this man. Now, that already is problematic. And we're going to see this guy put in some difficult circumstances, a guy who came from very difficult circumstances, and we're going to approach this similarly to the way we did a few weeks ago. We'll first look at this problem, this man that attempts to manipulate God. Then we'll see the consequence, this overwhelmingly disastrous loss that Jephthah is going to endure, that you're going to see. And then we'll ask ourselves a question, how can we simply live in submission to God? Two things there. How can we live in submission to God, not trying to manipulate our circumstances for our own selfish welfare or gain. So let's start with this problem, this attempt to manipulate God. The story starts out the same way as the book of, of most do in the book of Judges. The Israelites had peace for 45 years following Abimelech. We talked about Abimelech last week, but did they start doing what they always did? They start following these Canaanite gods, and God warned them. They said, wipe out these Canaanites, or you're just going to start acting like these Canaanites. And that's exactly what's been going on. Acting like Canaanites, worshiping their gods. And it says this time, earlier in the passage, that God was furious with the Israelites. 
And it seems as though he's absolutely reached his limit. And the Israelites are being ruthlessly oppressed. Well, they repent. And they start worshiping God again. But God says this time it's different. And look at verse, this is in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. It says, but since you abandoned me and worshiped other gods, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry for help to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you from trouble. So here's where they are. In this case, God is not going to provide them with a deliverer. And that's a big, big problem because these Ammonites, these Canaanites are encroaching on their land. They're coming. And they know that they're going to have to go to battle and go to war with these these Ammonites. This is another name. They're, They're Canaanites. And they need a deliverer. This brings us to the passage I just read this morning. Jephthah is going to be the only judge deliverer that God has not chosen. He was selected without God's help. And again, this is not a good sign of how things are going to go. And it says there in the text, he was the son of a prostitute. And his family in Israel, they had completely cast him out. They said, because you are from another mother, you're not going to get any of our father's inheritance. Go do your own thing. We don't need you. At least we don't need you yet. And Jephthah evidently is an incredible warrior. He surrounded himself instead with lawless men. And these Israelites, they want to use him to get out from underneath the oppression of these Ammonites that are just bearing down on them. That takes us to verses uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 11. It says that Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, All right, and listen to how he says this. If you take me back to fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. And the leaders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will judge any grievance you have against us if we do not do as you say. Notice the tone. God had not been sought out in this, but look, look at what these these leaders are saying. Now they're bringing God into the picture. They're bringing God into the picture, but on their own terms. May God strike us dead, Gilead. I'm sorry, Jephthah, if we don't do as you say. Jephthah, well, if the Lord gives them to me, I'll be your leader. So Jephthah accepts this position. There's no waiting on God here. The people agree they'll take him back, which, by the way, is sad in and of itself. You see, Jephthah desperately wants the acceptance of these people. Can you imagine having been cast out? He was the son of a prostitute. He was unwanted. And he's living with that deep, deep insecurity. So he's going to do whatever. So then we see these hints of manipulation, but then they come into full bloom into what happens next. And here, starting at verse 12, Jephthah, he's been hired by the Israelites. He's going to lead them into battle. He's a mighty warrior. So now he goes and he starts negotiating with this Ammonite king. And then picking up the next verse, it says Jephthah sent messengers. He's acting very kingly here to the Ammonite king saying, why have you come against, and listen to this, why have you come against me to attack my land? Now, these people wanted no part of him, but all of a sudden, he's taking ownership. 
of this land. When did it become his land? And we can see his heart here. And by the way, feelings of inferiority can be a, a, a taskmaster. This was pushing him to do things that he should have never done. Uh, these Israelites merely saw him as a warrior. They wanted to use him. And again, he's desperate for their acceptance. So he wants to win. See, he feels like a nobody desperately wanting to be a somebody. He continues this conversation. He brings God to the conversation. We see it here in verse 27. He says, I have not done you wrong, but you are doing wrong by, again, attacking me. May the Lord, the judge, judge this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Now he's bringing God into it. And we see, I'm going to call this stage one of this manipulation. Let me explain what it is Jephthah's done. In the previous verses, he'd gone through all of this Israelite history. And he'd said, look, Moses went through your land. In essence, he's saying, God, if you let this guy come in and take over, he's undoing what you've done. God, what are you going to do about that? Judge this day between us and them. He's practically daring God to do something here. And then we come to verse 29 and we start reading. It says, the Lord's spirit empowered Jephthah. God is, is in this. He's, he's empowered Jephthah to go and do the deed. He has stepped in graciously, lovingly. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and went to Mizpah and Gilead. From there, he approached the Ammonites. It's time to go to battle. I so wish this passage would have stopped right there. And I so wish that the next few verses just wouldn't have happened. Because Jephthah wants more than a victory. Jephthah wants to be a somebody. So he goes on, and in verses 33-32, it says, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, saying, If you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, then whoever, he doesn't say whatever, then whoever is the first to come through the, the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, he will belong to the Lord, and I will offer him up as a burnt sacrifice." Jephthah approached the Ammonites to fight with them. The Lord handed them over to him. He defeated them from Aror all the way to Mineth, 20 cities in all. Even as far as Abel, Karamim, he wiped them out. The Israelites humiliated the Ammonites. He gets what he wants. But what does that mean? This is going to turn out to be the worst vow probably in all of the Bible, that anybody's ever made to God. It was totally unnecessary for him to try to prod God into these actions for his own purposes. He's treating God as though he were one of the Canaanite gods, making this vow to him. As a matter of fact, I came across a prayer, and they discovered this inscribed on a stone tablet, and it's actually a prayer to Baal uh, that, that was discovered. And this is what a prayer to Baal would have looked like. O Baal, if you drive the strong one from our gate, the warrior from our walls, a bull, O Baal, we shall sanctify, a vow, O Baal, we shall fulfill. 
Baal, if you give us what we want, we'll sacrifice a bull to you. See, this is the logic that our friend Jephthah has locked into. He's praying to God as though he were a god of the Canaanites. So what we see is God cannot be manipulated for our own selfish needs. He cannot be manipulated for our own selfish needs. I do think there are ways that we try to manipulate God for ourselves. I think there's a few ways. One of those is, God, you must make me happy. You have to, God. That's, that's your will for my life, that, I, that I'm happy. And, and if you're not making me happy, then you're withholding happiness from me. You won't find anywhere in scriptures that God is here to make you happy. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Joy is the deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things, but nowhere are we promised we're going to be happy. As a matter of fact, if you look at the life of Christ, he grieved, he wept, he wasn't happy all the time. So why would we ever come to God in some way pressuring him, thinking he's here to make us happy? Or secondly, that we withdraw from prayer. We'll show you God. We'll give you the silent treatment. See how you like... Well, just see who suffers if you withdraw from prayer. Third, well, God, if you're really good, you would do this. And if you don't do it, well, I just don't know if you're as good as you say you are. And maybe you felt like that. And you know what? Sometimes the things we're praying for are good things. A, a, A relationship to be reconciled, a child to get well for our own health. But God is always good. And then finally, and this is where I think many of us struggle the most, and it's so subtle and it's so American, and that is performance. It's probably the one that I think that's most often tried. See, America rewards high performers. If you work really hard, you can make a lot of money. Um, If you're really smart, you can do this, you can do that. And it's by our own performance oftentimes that we get what we believe we deserve by performing well. I've worked so hard, so I deserve fill in the blank, this lifestyle, this car, to be with this group of friends. And if that's your attitude, it can carry right over into your relationship with God. God, I have served you and served you, and I've done this, and I've done that. So why don't I have this? They're not doing half as much as I am. God, are you living up to your end of the deal? If you go into church history, you'll find that the most faithful to God oftentimes had the most tortured lives. The most faithful went through the most tragedy. But oftentimes we'll come to God as though he's some sort of a cosmic vending machine. And if we just drop the right coins in, then we'll get what we want. And it doesn't work that way. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus that's just here to give us what it is that we want, that, we, that what we're, we're looking for. It doesn't work that way. Now, we do strive to be holy. We do strive to do our best. We do strive to use the gifts that he's given us, but not for earthly goodies. We do it motivated by love 
and gratitude. He saved us. We're going to get to spend all eternity with Him. That's why we strive to live the way He's taught us to live. And by the way, that's where you're going to find the peace and the joy, by doing it God's way. So I want to come back to the text, and I want to look at the consequences um, that Jephthah is going to bear this disastrous loss. You heard the vow that he made, uh, and, he, and he got what he wanted. He defeated these Ammonites. He wipes them out, as the text says. They were humiliated. So now they're enjoying the victories. He and the soldiers, and they're, they're on their way home. You can imagine the fanfare, and, and, and this is a moment that Jephthah's been wanting desperately he wants that love. He wants that acceptance. And now he's getting it. He's embraced by his family. And then comes the horror and the heartbreak. Because after having vowed to God, he would sacrifice whoever came through his door. We get to verses 34 and 35. When Jephthah came home to Mitzvah, and, and, and there was his daughter hurrying out to meet him. dancing to the rhythm of tambourines. She was his only child except for her. He had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he ripped his clothes and said, Oh, no. My daughter, you have completely ruined me. You have brought me disaster. I made an oath to the Lord, and I cannot break it. His only child, his daughter, lovingly running out to meet her father, wanting to celebrate the victory with him, and she brings doom down on her own head. But then look closely at verse 35. Notice the pronouns. You have completely ruined me? Wait a second. Who made this vow? You have brought me disaster? What about her life? I made an oath to the Lord, and I cannot break it. No compassion. Now, I think the agony is true. I think it's real, but it still is all about him. Remember, he's a nobody that wants to be a somebody, and he made a rash vow to try to get there. But no comforting to her. He doesn't say, I brought disaster to you. You brought it to me. He never tries to walk back this vow, by the way. See, God hates child sacrifice. As a matter of fact, he's going to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel because they were sacrificing their children. He calls it an abomination in Deuteronomy uh, 12.31. He says he hates it. And in all likelihood, because Jephthah believes that he won this battle, now he's a somebody because of this vow. He's believing because of this vow, now I'm a somebody. So what does that mean? Well, he's got to see it through to the end. See, there's more to be done. There's more to be had. If I can make a vow like this, it'll turn me from a nobody into a somebody. Okay, so I'll sacrifice my daughter. There could be more success down the line if he keeps the vow. So he keeps the vow. His, his daughter ultimately has to comfort him for this decision that he's made. Picking it up in verse 36, she said to him, my father, since you made an oath to the Lord, do to me as you promised. After all, the Lord vindicated you before your enemies, the Ammonites. She then said to her father, please grant me this one wish. For two months, allow me to walk through the hills with my friends and mourn my virginity. She'll never be married, never have children. 
and he simply says, go. That's all the words that he offers his daughter through this time. As a matter of fact, she's going to be commemorated uh, annually, the text says in verse 40. The Israelites will commemorate her death annually. It's tragic. And you'd think after this girl's death and this commemoration that this would be the end of Jephthah, but it's not. See, he's ambitious. He's a nobody. He's got an inferiority complex. He wants to be a somebody. And there's nothing like an ambition that's been generated by a deep sense of insecurity. It can know no bounds. This kind of reminds me of one of my favorite musicians. Uh, a guy named, his name's Neil Peart. He's the drummer for a band called Rush. I've seen him play live several times. I'll never get in an interview. Um, somebody came to him and said, uh, what made you such a great drummer? And I'll, I'll never get his answer because he was considered by many to be the world's greatest drummer. And he said in the interview, he said, well, you know, I'm from Canada. And he said, and I've got weak angles. He said, I can't play hockey. And he said, I had to get good at something. So I started getting on those drums. And to be honest, I kind of felt sorry for the guy because he's driven by, by self-worth. Well, if I can't play hockey, I better be able to do something. I better be able to do it really, really good. So it was self-esteem. I pray he finds Jesus. So Jephthah, fueled by this insecurity, seeking to find security and worth in a similar fashion as a Canaanite would, continues the, the, the bloodbath in the next section. A group of men from Ephraim are going to come to him and say, why did you invite us to go up against the Ammonites? It's always interesting how these guys show up after victory. Why, why couldn't we be part of that after it's already won? They threaten to burn down his house. There's some insults thrown around. And ultimately, ultimately Jephthah and his warriors are going to wipe out 42,000 fellow Israelites. So it just continued. See, attempts to manipulate God can lead to a tragic loss of blessing. A tragic loss of blessing. And this downward spiral, uh, as, as he just adopts these, these behaviors of unbelievers, are just going to accelerate the downward spiral. See, if we're trying to manipulate God, if we're trying to perform to gain His blessing, we're going to miss out on the freedom that God intends us to have. Inferiority and security can be a horrible taskmaster. And our will can be a horrible taskmaster. And just think about this for a moment. You can very well miss the freedom that God intends you to have if you feel like you're having to perform to gain His good favor. Um, are you trying to perform your way into God's love? And it's not an easy question to answer. There's a story, actually, from a guy named Os Guinness. He's a great writer. Uh, he was a journalist with the BBC for a while. And when he first became a Christian, he's a very gifted guy. He's very smart. He felt as though he had to become a minister or a missionary in order to sort of gain God's love and acceptance. And the people around him were pressuring him to do this. So he did. He was working at a church, and he absolutely hated it. And he tells a story. He was uh, getting his car filled up at the gas station, and he stopped and he talked to the, the gas pump attendant for about 10 minutes. And uh, that in that conversation, he, he says this about it. He said, I had just had my car filled up with gas and enjoyed a marvelously rich conversation with the pump attendant. As I turned on the key and engine to my car, my car roared to life. He said, a thought suddenly hit me with the force of an avalanche. 
this man was the first person I had spoken to in a week who was not a, a church member. I was in danger of being drawn in a religious ghetto. He said, 10 minutes of conversation with a friendly gas pump attendant on a beautiful spring evening in England. And he said, and I knew once and for all I was not cut out to work full-time in a church. See, all it took was a conversation for him to realize, I want to be in a place where I can interact more with unbelievers. And he hated being on staff at a church, being a minister. See, he was seeking God's guidance. He discovered that God was not calling him to work in a church. And it says that after God released him for what he wasn't supposed to do, he found the freedom to pursue God's calling for his life. I hope you're feeling freedom. I hope you're not feeling locked into something. I hope you don't feel like, well, God's making me do this. There's a, there's a, a line out of a song by the Eagles. It's called Already Gone. We live our life in chains, and we never knew we had the key. So the question comes to us, well, how can I live in submission to God? Which ironically is where you find freedom is in submission to God. So how do we find submission to God? I want to talk about two things. The first is surrender. Surrender. Uh, I remember growing up at Dunbar First Baptist Church, we would have an altar call at the end of the service. And one song we heard more often than not was, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. You see, that's how we approach God. All to Him we surrender. All to Him we freely give. You know, surrender is just such an easy word to let roll off the tongue, but it's so much harder to put into practice. But that's exactly what we have to do. See, when we came to faith in Christ, and it could have happened any number of ways. Maybe you walked down to the front of the church. Maybe you were at a conference sitting in a seat. Maybe you were driving in your car, and, and all of a sudden you sort of got the gospel. But when you did that, God got it all. There was nothing else in your life that, that you were to hold back. Everything, all of you, past, present, and future, became His. There's a speaker you may have heard of, um, a, a guy by the name of Nick Vujicic. Uh, Nick and uh, he's a Christian speaker. Maybe you've seen one of his videos online. He's uh, incredible. And he was born with this condition uh, with no arms and legs. And he, he talked about just emotionally and physically what a hard time he had with this. Uh, as he was growing up, you can imagine going through your elementary school years and your teen years in a condition like this. But yet he describes himself as having now a ridiculously good life. And somebody asked him one time, well, how is that? And this was his response. He said, when people read about my life or witness me living it, they are prone to congratulate me for being victorious over my disabilities. I tell them that my victory came in surrender. It comes every day when I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own. So I say to God, I give it to you. Once I yielded, the Lord took my pain and turned it into something good. He gave my life meaning when no one and nothing else could provide it. And if God can take someone like me, someone without arms and legs, and use me as his hands and feet, he can use anybody. It's not about ability. The only thing God needs from you is a willing heart. That's what he needs. Willingness. Are you willing? Are you willing to surrender everything to God? See, that's where the joy and peace reside. 
in complete surrender. Then secondly, uh, contentment. Contentment. The word, if you, if you look at the Greek word for contentment, it literally means self-sufficient. It means you are sufficient with what God has given you. Plus godliness. Godliness and contentment are a great gain. But it means that you have what God has, has given you and he tends for you to be content with what you have. Billy Graham tells this great story. He and his wife, Ruth, were going uh, to visit a guy in the Caribbean. He was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he was 75 years old. And they go, and they have lunch with him at his mansion in the Caribbean. And they're having a conversation. Billy Graham says he could tell that this guy was right on the verge of tears. And through this conversation, the guy finally just bursts out and says, I am the most miserable man in the world. Uh, his exact words were, he said, uh, I'm the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy, yet I am as, as miserable as, I'm not going to say what he said, but he was that miserable. Billy Graham said, we talked to him and prayed with him and trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. But he said, then we walked down a hill. He said, we were staying in a small cottage, and that afternoon, the local Baptist pastor came to give him a call. Also 75 years old, a widower. He was taking care of his two invalid uh, sisters. It said he was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. And the guy said this. He said, I don't have $2 to my name. But he said, I'm the happiest man on this island. And Billy Graham turned to his wife, Ruth, after they left and said, who do you think is the richer man? So putting these things together, live under God, not over God, not trying to impose your will on God, but living under God in submission to Him through surrender and contentment. I want to close with this, uh, this story by Howard Hendricks. Uh, he was a great Bible teacher at Dallas Seminary. I was privileged to have one, lunch with him one time. And he said he was in a plane one time, and we, we were, they were waiting to take off, but it was delayed, and everybody was getting hot and angry and mean. But he said this one stewardess was able to was able to keep her composure. And he said it was amazing. She never got stirred up. Nothing seemed to be bothering her. So he wanted to write her a letter of commendation to the airline, and she replied to him. She said, well, I don't work for the airline company. She said, I work for Jesus Christ. And she said that just before going to work, she and her husband prayed together that she would be a good representative of Christ that day. See, doing it for Christ's sake adds this other dimension to submission because you're not, just, you're not just submitting to an employer, to a parent, or to whomever the authority may be. You're submitting to God himself. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your sufficiency. You know what we need. You've given us what we need. And I pray that we would daily surrender our will to yours and that we would enjoy the contentment that can only come from a relationship with you. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful day.